السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Can someone just give me a mic check? I think there's a delay, it seems like, on my side. Can everyone hear me okay? Because it seems like there's a delay on my side. I don't know if that's just me. Just imagining that, or if there's actually a delay. Okay. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin. Wal-aqibatu lil-muttaqin. Wal-a'udwana illa ala al-zalimin. Wa-ashadu an la ilaha illa allahu wahdahu la sharika lahu ilahu al-awwalina wal-akhirin. وأشهد أن نبينا محمد عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد. Welcome to Quranic progression. إن شاء الله تعالى today we're going to continue with our تفسير of سورة العلا. But before we begin, as I asked last week, we had a research question, a topic that I was hoping that some of you would research and. At least look into, even if you don't do a paper on it, but just read up on it and then uh, give me your feedback. And that was to do with the first verse of Surah Al-A'la that we mentioned last week, and that is the statement of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, "Sabbihisma Rabbika Al-A'la," and how it was the position, uh, or it is the position of some scholars that after this verse and you know similar verses that you praise Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala because it is a verse of praise. So, for example, after this verse, you say Subhana Rabbiya Laala. And I wanted you to research that as to whether that's something which is uh, correct and also uh, when and where it's done and, and how and so on. And so I don't know if anyone's uh, managed to do anything regarding that, but if you have, then please uh, place it on the chat so that we can have a look. And then inshallah ta'ala, we will, um, that's where we'll kind of begin today's lesson. So whilst you're doing that, I'll go over the uh, I'll like just do a brief summary and recap of what we did last week and then inshallah ta'ala we can uh, see what's, uh, what people have done. So we began last week with the tafsir of Surah Al-A'la and we mentioned that there's a number of names or descriptions by which it is known in the books of tafsir and the books of hadith and the books of ulum al-Quran, sciences of the Quran. Uh, from those names and perhaps the most famous of them is the name that we're familiar with and that is Surah Al-A'la. And that is mentioned by a number of the scholars such as Ibn Abi Hatim and Imam Nisa'i. And from the names of this surah is Sabbihisma Rabbika Laala, which is essentially the first verse. And that's reported by Imam Bukhari and Al-Tabari and Al-Hakim and others. And then we have Surah Sabbih and Surah Sabbihisma Rabbik. This hadith as we, or this surah rather as we mentioned last week is mentioned in a number of hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam as a surah that he would recite and that he would encourage others to recite. He would recite it himself in prayers like the Jumu'ah prayer and the Eid prayer as we know and the Witr prayer uh, and it is a surah that he would encourage others to recite especially when leading Salah as we mentioned last week in the hadith of Mu'adh when he 
prolonged salah, Salatul Isha one night and recited from Surah Al-Baqarah, the Prophet ﷺ told him that instead he should have recited the Surah similar to Surah Al-A'la. And we've mentioned previously uh, that the, the companions, when they estimated the length of the Salah of the Prophet ﷺ, they said concerning the Isha prayer that he would read from the uh, from the Awsatul um, Mufassal, from the middle Mufassal Surahs, which as we said are from Surah Naba' Amma Yatissa'alun, all the way up to Wadduha. And so those surahs would include surahs like Surah Al-A'la. And so it is kind of in the middle of those mufassal, those middle mufassal surahs. And so Surah Al-A'la is neither from the, you know, from the very long uh, of the middle mufassal, nor is it from the slightly shorter middle mufassal. It is kind of in the middle. And so the, that is the surah that the Prophet ﷺ recommended for the Imam in Salatul Isha. We said that this surah, according to the vast majority of the scholars, is a Makki surah. Uh, according to the mass, vast majority of the scholars of tafsir, to the extent that some of them even said that it is by ijma', by consensus. But we mentioned the statement of al-Dahak from the scholars of tafsir that he considered it to be a madani surah, and that there are some uh, narrations of Ibn Abbas anhuma that he said concerning one or two verses that they are madani. But there are also other narrations from Ibn Abbas that seem to state that it is a Makki surah. And Allah Azza wa knows best and as we said uh, it, it seems to be a Makki surah at least because of that narration that we mentioned last week in Al-Bukhari Bara ibn Azib an, in which he said that the Prophet وسلم, by the time he came to Medina for the Hijrah I had already memorized a number of surahs including unlike Surah Al-A'la. Surah Al-A'la begins by praising or glorifying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and exalting him subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we said that this is something which Allah azza wa does in a number of places in the Quran. For example, Surah Al-Isra. And Allah azza wa when he exalts himself, it is to denote his perfection and his completeness from everything which is deficient. By its very nature, anything which is from the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is deficient unless Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed within it a level of completeness and perfection. So for example, uh, the Prophet وسلم, Allah has made him complete in certain ways when it comes to his revelation. Otherwise, he is still human. And so therefore, Allah is the one who alone has complete and per- complete uh, perfection subhanahu wa ta'ala in every way, shape and form. Uh, the Scholars of Tafsir, as we mentioned last week, they differed as to me- the meaning of this verse, بِحِسْمَ رَبِّكَ الْعَلَىٰ Glory, uh, glorify your, the, the name of your Lord, the Most High. And we said that some of the scholars said that it's referring to the glorification of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself and that we should glorify Allah azza wa from everything which is uh, unbecoming and unbefitting of him subhanahu wa ta'ala. And others from the scholars of Tafsir said that it is to glorify the name of Allah azza wa as the verse states and that is essentially glorifying Allah's name from it being included or added or in any way uh, you know any way uh, mixed up with those things that are unbecoming like for example the way that the Quraysh and the Arabs would do when they would give some of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or some of his attributes to their gods and their idols so for example Allat and Al-Uzza and so on and so forth uh, and we mentioned, I think, last week also the statement of Ibn al-Qayyim ta'ala, and how he essentially uh, kind of reconciled between those two points. And he said that in, that the uh, the uh, the verse includes both. It includes the glorification of Allah Azza wa which emerges and comes from the heart, 
and it includes glorifying the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as well. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Uh, one of the points that we, uh, I don't think we touched upon uh, last week concerning verse number one, and I'll, I'll mention that as well now before we go on to our research topic, uh, is the name of Allah Azza wa Jal al-A'la, this attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I think we may have briefly touched upon it in the sense, I think I remember mentioning how the Prophet wasallam told us that this uh, verse, as is in some narrations, that this verse should be placed in sujood, meaning that the dua or the dhikr that we take from this verse is the dua and dhikr that we make in sujood, which is why in sajda we say, Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la. And we also know that the sajda is the place where we are closest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As is in the hadith, أَقْرَبُ مَا يَكُونُ الْعَبْدُ مِنْ رَبِّهِ وَهُوَ السَّاجِدِ The closest place that you can be to your Lord in this world is in the place of prostration. And in that place of prostration, when we place our heads on the ground at the lowest, uh, you know, in the lowest possible way upon the earth that we physically uh, can, in that position of utmost humbleness and humility, and if you think about the position of, of sajda, uh, it is the position uh, that is that is extremely you know, you're in an extremely vulnerable place in the sense that when you are in the salah when you're standing even when you're in ruku' you're in bowing or you're sitting down in the shahud or between the two sajdas you still have a level of awareness around you you're able to see if someone was to come or someone was to walk past you you would have a level of awareness around you but when you are in sajda and especially if you're in jama'ah where there's people around you on either side in congregation then you would find that in that position you are vulnerable, right? And that is why we know that the Quraysh, when they wanted to harm the Prophet ﷺ in salah, they would wait for him to go down into sajda. Because you can't defend himself. If you're standing, you can defend yourself, right? If you're, you know, for example, if you're standing and someone wants to walk past you, you can stop them from walking in front of you in salah, as is the sunnah. But if you're in sajda and someone walks in front of you, you're not going to realize, you don't really know. And even if you did know and you, you, you recognize that someone's walking in front of you, there's very little that you can do about it, or very little in, in, in a physical way that you can stop them. So the Quraysh would wait for the Prophet to, to go down into sujood. And that's when, for example, we know in the story that they placed the entrails of the camel on his back. And you have that statement of Abu, uh, Abu Jahl. Uh, if memory serves me correctly, Abu Jahl or Abu Lahab, one of them, that said, that when he goes down into sujood, I will go and I will stamp upon his neck. He didn't say, let me go to him whilst he's standing or let me go to him whilst he's in ruku'ah because they recognize that you are extremely vulnerable. We, as Muslims, when you go down into sujood in that position of vulnerability, we do so to glorify our Lord and to praise him subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's as if you are completely, which is exactly what the prostration is. It is full and complete submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is you showing yourself to be at your most vulnerable and your most needy and in your most impoverished form before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that there is nothing that you could do in terms of and that is why uh, if you look throughout the sunnah it is amazing the, the way that the sujood is mentioned from uh, those uh, hadith of the sujood that we have is that when the Prophet sallallahu will come on yawm al-qiyamah to make the great intercession what we call the Shafa'atul Uzma, which is the intercession for Yawmul Qiyamah to begin, in the sense of the counting and the judgment of that day to begin. The Prophet says, as the hadith says, that the people will go to the different Prophets, Adam and Nuh and Ibrahim, Musa and Isa, السلام, and then eventually they come to the Prophet, and the Prophet accepts. 
he goes before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what does he do? He falls into sajda. And he stays there for as long as Allah wills. And he says that Allah Azza wa Jal will teach me Muhammad praises, dua, adhkar that I never knew before. Meaning that in the dunya, the adhkar that we have in the duas, those are not the duas that I will be making, but Allah will teach me new ones that I will make on that day. And that is all in the position of sajda, the position of prostration. And so it shows that this is a position that we go into to show our utmost humility, humbleness, submission, vulnerability to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And at the same time, we praise Allah azza wa as being the one that is most high subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah azza wa is al-a'la. And the name al-a'la, as the scholars mention, that Allah azza wa is the most high, comes from ulu. Allah azza wa is al-ali, which means the high. Al-a'la means the most high. Meaning that there is no one above him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by saying or by calling him or by describing him as being as al-a'la, uh, as the scholars mention, when it comes to the names and attributes of Allah, the name al-a'la, the most high, in itself denotes completeness and perfection. Because we consider those to be in power to be up high. Right? We often say the high and the mighty. The high and the mighty means the ruling elite those people in power, they're not necessarily physically high in this world, but even, for example, in, in kings and in kings and queens in the palaces and so on, the dais where the throne is, is usually set up above where the rest of the people will be, right? And that's a very common, uh, common thing that people use in, in negotiations and tactics where one person is slightly above the other if they want to give themselves a certain level of, of you know, a certain level of power or certain level of uh, authority. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-a'la because that name Allah azza wa jal automatically it denotes therefore that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is perfect in every way, that Allah azza wa jal is complete in every way. So when Musa alayhi salatu wasalam came to Pharaoh and he came with the message of worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what did Pharaoh say about himself from all of the attributes and all of the descriptions that he could have used to describe what he claimed was his own uh, divinity for himself being a god? He said, I am your Lord, the Most High. That's the one description that he chose. And when he came to trying to debunk the God of Musa, when he wanted to refute this, when he wanted to, what did he say to, uh, to Haman, to one of his close advisors? Oh, Haman, go and build for me a tower. Build for me a structure that I may climb it, that I may go and see this God of Musa that is above. Because he recognized that Allah Azza wa Jal or the true God would be one that is high and above subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so you see throughout the Quran that Allah Azza wa Jal mentions these types of indications concerning this particular attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that is that Allah Azza wa Jal is the most high. Which is why then those people who deny the ascension of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala above his throne or for example what some people say that Allah azza wa is everywhere or the more extreme form of that that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not only everywhere all around us but he is within us as well and he is in everything and part of everything as is the aqidah and the belief of certain uh, groups uh, amongst the Muslims it shows to you the, uh, the, 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 the severity of, of the, and the evil of that type of belief 
and how mistaken it is that even the non-Muslim, someone like Pharaoh, with all of his oppression, all of his tyranny, all of his transgression, even he recognized this attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it is something which Allah has placed within the fitrah of all of, of all of his creation, which is why when we need something and we're in dire need or in calling out to Allah, it is natural and normal that we look up, that we hold our hands up. Even the non-Muslims, when they're looking for some type of relief from the heavens, even if they don't necessarily believe in a God, but they believe in some type of spiritual or divine power, they always look up. No one looks around, no one looks down, they look up. Because that is something natural which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed within the fitrah and the natural inclination of people. And so Allah azza wa jal, uh, praises himself subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-A'la by mentioning this amazing name and attribute of his subhanahu wa ta'ala. And therefore, he is most worthy of praise, most worthy of glorification, most worthy of worship subhanahu wa ta'ala alone because of that uh, attribute that he possesses, that he is a la'ala, for the one that is the most high and the one that is far above all of his creation and the one therefore that sees all of them and knows all of them and uh, has complete and intimate knowledge of their actions and their intentions, he alone is deserving of worship subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is the first verse that we covered uh, of Surah Al-A'la. I don't really see anyone uh, in the chat um, having given me anything in terms of the research question. So I don't know if that's just like some people didn't do it or they did it and they don't really want to put anything up. But anyway, uh, let us go on to the question that we then asked. Uh, so as I've said before, when we've done similar topics like this, which are kind of like fiqh related, um, the idea behind us doing this in, in QP is not to go to the, you know, to into in-depth fiqh discussions. Uh, that's a different place. We have like fiqh classes and fiqh books and texts for that. However, obviously, by virtue of studying the Quran, we will undoubtedly come uh, across many fiqh issues. Like we're still kind of because of the order that we started with, with the beginning of Surah Al-Nas and, and moving in Juz Amma and most of these Makki surahs, as we know, the hakam and the rulings of Islam and the legislations and so on don't really come a great deal in the Meccan period. They will come in the Medinan period. But if you were, for example, to be in Surah Al-Baqarah and, and those types of surahs, then we would undoubtedly come across many issues of fiqh. And no, no, no doubt, inshallah ta'ala, at one point or another, we will come across issues of inheritance and marriage and divorce and sarah and tayammum and wudu and all of those other hajj and so on and so forth. And therefore, we will have to discuss them. However, when we discuss them, it will be a fiqhi discussion up until, until a point so that we don't open a door that makes it very difficult for us to kind of like continue with our tafsir. So because this is something which I which will occur a number of times in the Quran, it's already, we've already had one example at the end of Surah Al-Teen, the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, alayhi sallahu bihakamil hakimin, and I think I touched upon it very briefly then. But the first time where it's actually come uh, as a as a narration uh, that you will find within the books of Tafsir uh, being mentioned is perhaps here, uh, more so than even the one in Surah Al-Teen, even though that is mentioned also in the books of Tafsir. Uh, this verse of the Qur'an, Rabbika it is reported amongst a number of the Salaf that they would say after reciting this verse, Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la. And we know as we mentioned the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, that he told us to place it in a sujood. Uh, this practice of saying Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la after reciting this verse has been narrated from a number of the companions such as Ibn Abbas and Ali radiallahu anhum ajma'in and a number of the tabi'een 
uh, and the scholars of the Salaf, such as Qatada, rahimahullah ta'ala. And in fact, amongst some of them, they even said that it was something which the Prophet did himself, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now, as we will mention, there are hadith that speak about the Prophet ﷺ making certain adhkar whilst reciting the Qur'an. So perhaps that is what some of the Salaf meant, that this is from those verses in which the Prophet ﷺ would make tasbih. Because as we know, إِذَا مَرَّ بِآيَةِ تَسْبِيحٍ سَبَّحْ The hadith says that if he passed by a verse of glorification or praise, he would praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Perhaps that is the meaning. Or perhaps it is, and Allah knows best, that they're referring to the Prophet specifically making tasbih at this verse, which is Subhan Subhanallah, the first verse of Surah Al-A'la. I don't know, Allah knows best, but I didn't come across a hadith to that effect concerning Subhanallah, other than the statement of Qatada and others, that it was narrated to us, we heard mention. Meaning, because Qatada is from the Tabi'een, that we heard from the companions of the Prophet used to do this. That is uh, what I came across on Allah knows best, which is why I was hoping that someone else maybe might have come across something else. So the question here is, is twofold. Number one, we have the, this verse in Surah, uh, Surah Al-A'la, but obviously this is a wider issue, right? So it's not just one verse in one part of the Qur'an, but it is something which recurs. A number of times we have verses of tasbih, and then we can add on to that also verses of uh, asking Allah for reward or seeking Allah's refuge from punishment. So the verses of tasbih, uh, you will find them in different contexts in the Qur'an. So for example, from those verses are commands in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands us to praise Him, commands us to glorify Him, such as in this verse in Surah Al-A'la. It is a command, Sabbihisma, exalt your Lord, glorify the name of your Lord. That is a command. And likewise in the verse in Surah Al-Waqi'ah, فَسَبِّحْ بِسْمِ رَبِّكَ الْعَظِيمِ Glorify the name of your Lord, the most great. And that's the verse that the Prophet said, make that in your ruku' meaning say in your ruku' Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim. Or, for example, the verse in Surah Al-Naml, وَقُولِ الْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ سَيُرِيكُمْ آيَاتِهِ فَتَعْرِفُونَهَا And say or praise is due to Allah, and you will surely see His signs and recognize them. So that's one type of praise that you have in the Qur'an of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then you also have verses of praise and glorification that are not commands, but in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us and informing us that from His creation are those that praise Him and those that glorify Him. So for example, the statement of Allah azza in Surah Al-Anbiya that He said concerning the Malaika, the angels, يُسَبِّحُونَ اللَّيْلَ nahar. They praise Allah or they glorify and exalt Allah by morning and by night. Uh, and likewise, the, the verse in Surah Ghafir also concerning the angels, The throne bearers, Allah says, from the angels and those around them, they praise and glorify your Lord. And likewise, the verse in Surah Al-Isra concerning all of Allah's creation, And there is nothing except that it glorifies and praises Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All the verses, for example, that you get towards the end of the 27th juz and in the 28th juz, all of those surahs that begin with سَبَّحَ لِلَّهِ يُسَبِّحُ لِلَّهِ right? That the earth and the heavens and everything within them, they glorify and praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so these are verses that you find within the Qur'an. And then there are other verses that are neither commands to praise Allah, nor are they speaking about Allah's creation praising Him or some of Allah's creation praising Him. But they speak about, for example, 
uh, Allah Azza wa Jal rebuking those who don't praise Him or don't remember Him. For example, Allah Azza wa Jal saying concerning the hypocrites, "Wala yadkurun Allah illa qalila." They remember Allah very little. Or the opposite of that, and that is that from the attributes of the believers is that they remember Allah. Alladina amanu wa tatmainu. Qulubuhum bidhikrillah. Allah Azza wa Jal describes the believers in Surah Rad, and He says those who believe and their hearts seek contentment in the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then obviously you have verses that speak about Jannah, verses that speak about the fire, verses that speak about paradise and reward, verses that speak about the punishment and the fire. The um, hadith that speak about this are, are a number of hadith, there are a number of narrations, but you know, just to like save time and to and so that this doesn't become an overly long uh, lesson. Um, the first hadith that we have is the hadith in Sahih Muslim uh, of Hudayfa radiallahu an, and that is that Hudayfa radiallahu an was describing the night prayer of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and that he was praying with him, and he said. Describing the recitation of the Prophet sallallahu And this is the famous hadith when Hudayfa radiallahu starts to pray with the Prophet and the Prophet begins with Surah Al-Baqarah. I think you've heard this hadith perhaps uh, from me a number of times and elsewhere. It recites Surah Al-Baqarah in Tahajjud. This is Qiyamul Layna, it's night prayer. It starts with Surah Al-Baqarah and Hudayfa thinks, okay, he will make ruku' after 100 verses. He continues, so he thinks, okay, 200 verses. He continues and he thinks, okay, he will finish the surah and then go into ruku'ah. But then he starts surah to nisa So he thinks, okay, he will finish surah nisa then go into ruku'ah, and then he goes back to surah al-Imran and he recites that surah. And then he makes ruku'ah. And then Hudayfa radiallahu an, despite this extraordinary length, lengthy salah, he then describes the manner of his recitation and he says, يَقْرَأُ mutarasira. He was reading calmly. So you would think that if you were reading such an amount of Quran in a prayer, and especially in a single rak'ah, that you would be reading extremely fast, you know, so fast. As sometimes you see on these YouTube videos of some imams that they're reading so fast that you can't make head or tail of what, where they started and where they're ending. He said, no, he was reading slowly, calmly. And if he passed by a verse in which there was praising Allah, or glorifying Allah as the glorification of Allah, he would stop and he would praise. وَإِذَا مَرَّ بِسُؤَالٍ سَأَلٍ And if he passed by a verse of dua in which he should ask for something, he would ask Allah Azza wa Jal. وَإِذَا مَرَّ بِتَعَوَّذٍ And if he passed by a verse of seeking refuge and uh, safety in Allah Azza wa Jal from his punishment and so on, then he would stop and he would do so. This hadith is in Sahih Muslim. The same hadith but with a slight difference in narration uh, in the, in the uh, wording of Imam al-Nasai. He says, لا يمر بآية تخويف أو تعظيم لله عز وجل إلا ذكره. He didn't pass by a verse uh, in which either there was some fear that was being cast, meaning Allah عز وجل is threatening punishment, or there is some glorification of Allah سبحانه وتعالى, except that He would stop and He would make mention of it. So in these hadith, we don't have the specific wording. It's not a specific du'a necessarily that you have to say. Or a specific way, but like we said, or you say Subhanallah, or you say Alhamdulillah. Allah says, Praise Allah, so you praise Him. And there's no specific dua because that's the common question that we often get asked what is the actual dua that you're meant to make? It's not a specific dua, but it is conforming to that command of Allah Azza wa Jal. Allah says, Praise Him, you praise Him. 
Allah says, make takbir, we say Allahu Akbar. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for example, says, uh, and we will give some examples of this, but for example, Allah Azza just speaks about Jannah, so you say, oh Allah, I ask you for Jannah, Allah min yasarikal Jannah, or Allah min ya'udhubika min al-nar, if you're seeking refuge from the fire. And likewise, also in what is collected by Imam al-Nasai in his Sunan, that is the hadith of Awf ibn Malik, radiyallahu anhu, that he said that I was once standing with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and he uh, wanted to pray, فَبَدَأَ So he began by cleaning his teeth with the miswak and making wudu. ثُمَّ قَامَ فَصَلَّى And then he stood to pray. فَاسْتَفْتَحَ مِنَ الْبَقَرَةِ So he began to recite Surah Al-Baqarah. لَا يَمُرُّ بِآيَةِ رَحْمَةٍ إِلَّا وَقَفَ وَسَأَلْ He didn't pass by a verse of mercy except that he stopped and he asked Allah Azza wa Jal for that mercy. وَلَا يَمُرُّ بِآيَةِ عَذَابٍ إِلَّا وَقَفَ يَتَعَوَّذ nor did he pass by a verse of punishment except that he also paused and he asked Allah Azza wa for that. So these are the hadith that we have concerning this. So the question therefore is when and how or where and how and when is this done? If you just give me one second please because I think my laptop's not on charge and it's going to die. Okay, excellent. So, uh, so when and where and how is this done? So the first uh, the first scenario, if you like, the first time and place that this would be done would be outside of Salah, right? Outside of Salah. So for example, someone's just reading Quran, they're sitting there and they're reading Quran by themselves uh, and and they pass by these verses of praising Allah Azza wa glorification of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they pass by verses of rahmah and, and mercy and asking Allah Azza wa for Jannah or seeking refuge from the fire. In, in this type of scenario, when a person is just reading by themselves and they're reading the Qur'an, then there is no doubt that this is something which is good to do. Because it is from the tadabbur of the Qur'an, from the ways that we contemplate the words of Allah and from the contemplation and reflection of the Qur'an, is that you interact with the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this way. That you understand that Allah is speaking about something which should either bring within you hope or it should bring within you a sense of fear, and so therefore you respond accordingly. And so there is no issue with regards to this, right? So this could be anyone. You're reading Quran, and you and you you know, for example, you have a page, two pages, three pages a day, and as you're reading, for example, with the translation, or for example, a tafsir class, we're making tafsir, and often as we do, we pass by certain verses that speak about jannah. We make dua for jannah, and so on. this is one of the ways that you interact with the book of Allah Azza wa Jalla that you can contemplate and you reflect over it. So it's reading the Qur'an, thinking about the Qur'an, contemplating over its verses, and action. Because from that action, from the ways of applying the Qur'an, and acting upon the Qur'an, is to make dua, make dhikr, and so on and so forth. And that is why uh, when Allah Azza wa says in Surah Al-Baqarah, concerning uh, the way that the Qur'an should be, Those to whom we gave the scripture, they follow it as it deserves to be followed. From the statements you find in the books of Tafsir, as Ibn Abi Hatim mentions in his Tafsir, is the statement of Umar that he said in the Tafsir of this verse, That if you pass by a verse that speaks about Jannah and Paradise, then ask Allah for Jannah. And if you pass by a verse that speaks about the fire and Allah's punishment, then seek Allah's refuge from the fire. And so this is one of the ways. So inside, uh, outside of salah, there's not a problem. Now obviously, it doesn't have to be done all the time. Nor is it something, for example, if you're 
you know, for example, someone's going to a class and they have like a group of people and, they, and the teacher's trying to teach them how to read the Quran or they're doing a Tajweed class or something like this. Not every single time and every single instance is that something which is possible. However, there should definitely be times and places in which this is to be done, not least because then you are also following these hadith and the sunnah of the Prophet The question, however, where there is therefore a difference of opinion and where you will find discussion amongst the scholars of fiqh is inside the salah, in the salah. So if you are in the salah and now you are reading the Quran, so for example, if we were just sitting here now and we're going through the tafsir of Surah Al-A'la and we say Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la because we finished verse number one, or you're sitting down at home and you're going over these notes and this lesson, or for example, you just read in the Quran and part of your recitation is that you're coming across these verses to make tasbih of Allah Azza wa Jalla and tahmeed and make dua and so on, there's no problem with this. What about in salah? Now we have these ahadith, one of these ahadith that I just narrated to you uh, a short while ago, the hadith of Hudayfa radiallahu an, the hadith of Awf ibn Malik radiallahu an. These are hadith that speak about inside the salah, in salah. So the question here therefore is, is this something which is general in every salah or is it specific salawat and as opposed to other salawat? And you will find amongst the madhahib, amongst the scholars of fiqh, <clears throat> those who kind of went to one side of this argument and, and restricted it a great deal, and those who went to the other side of this argument, and they kind of like went very, uh, very open and made it very general. And then there are scholars who kind of try to take a middle path between those two positions as well. So those from those who restricted it, or perhaps the madhab that restricts it most, this type of thing is the Hanafi madhab. According to the Hanafi Madhab, uh, they rahimahumullah say that the insalah, it is only something which is done if you are praying by yourself, what we call the munfarid. So there are three types of people in salah when it comes to uh, when it comes to you praying, you are of one of three types of people. Either you are munfarid, you are praying by yourself, or you are the imam, so you are leading others in prayer. Or you are ma'moom, you are part of a congregation behind an imam. Those are the only three scenarios that you can have when it comes to salah. Either you're praying by yourself, wherever you're praying, or you're the imam, which by definition then is that you are leading others, there are others with you, but they are following you. Or you are ma'moom, which means that you are part of the congregation, and you are following the imam. So they say, the Hanafis, rahimahumullah, that the munfarid, it is allowed for him to do so. In fact, it is good for him to do so because of these hadith that we have just mentioned. However, for the imam and the ma'moom in the congregational prayer, whether you're the imam or the one following the imam, then you shouldn't do so. And some of them even said it is a bid'ah or an innovation to do so. It is an innovation to do so. It seems that Allah Azza wa knows best. Uh, that these hadith that we have of Hudayf and Awfi bin Malik is when the Prophet وسلم, is praying with only one of the companions. So it's not like the salah in, for example, Isha. It's not, for example, Maghrib. It's not, for example, Fajr. It's not, for example, Taraweeh in the way that we know it today where we have you know, maybe hundreds if not thousands of people behind a single imam. So, for example, if you can imagine in Mecca and Medina, the two harams now, in the month of Ramadan, if the imam was to do this, Every single time he passed by a verse of tasbih or tahmeed or uh, a verse of, for example, uh, rahma, mercy or jannah or a verse of the fire or punishment, he was to stop and pause and silently speak to himself or make dua that he would that he would make 
you can imagine you know how how often those pauses would be and how lengthy that prayer may possibly become so they disliked it that it should be done or, or they said that it should only be done by the singular person when they're praying by themselves and it shouldn't be done by anyone else those who went to the other position if you like the opposite of the Hanafi position those who kind of said it's okay at all times do whenever you want are the Shafi'is the Shafi'i madhab and it is also the position of some of the Hanabila but it is known amongst the Shafi'is that they said that it is recommended in all situations whether it's a fard prayer or it's a nafal prayer whether you're the imam or you're part of the congregation or you're praying by yourself all of the salawat every single salah it is recommended to do so because they went with the general understanding of those hadith of the Prophet that this was his sunnah and there was nothing to say one thing over another. There's no restriction mentioned within those particular hadith. The Hanafis, obviously they went to the other one that the Prophet is doing this by himself, essentially. Even if there's one person with him, like you praying at home and your son comes and joins you, your daughter comes and joins you, that's like, it's not really uh, jama'ah, it's not really a congregation. So they still consider those hadith to be the singular person, like the Prophet ﷺ by himself, doing so. And so therefore, by its very definition, if you're a singular person, you're not praying in jama'ah, you're not the imam, you're not part of the congregation, which then rules out every prayer which is offered in congregation, such as the fard prayers and such as taraweeh and so on. So we have the position of the Shafi'is, which said that it is allowed at all times. Uh, and as Imam al-Nawi mentions, he said that Imam al-Shafi'i and all of our scholars, they say that it is the sunnah to do so, meaning to, to, to make these du'as and dhikr and so on. And he said that that is for the Imam and for the one in congregation or for the one praying uh, by himself. Uh, and he said it is very similar like saying Ameen. Like saying Ameen. You say Ameen if you're praying by yourself. You say Ameen if you're the Imam. You say Ameen if you are in the congregation. He said it is exactly like this. It is a type of dhikr that you make, which is part of the salah. We then have the other two remaining madhabs now, which is the Hanbali madhab and the Maliki madhab. The Hanbali madhab was of the position, uh, or is of the position, that it is recommended to do so in the Nafal prayer, but not in the Fard prayer. It is recommended to do so in the nafil prayer, but not in the fard prayer. And that is because these are hadith that speak about the Prophet ﷺ doing this. Number one, there is a type of congregation going on. So to say that he's alone isn't strictly correct because there is someone praying with him. And that's how we know that this was his practice because Hudayfa and Awfi bin Malik and other companions on occasions were praying with the Prophet ﷺ. And so they relayed to us his practice in this type of salah. But however, all of those salawat that are mentioned are nafal salahs. They are tahajjud, right? They're qiyamun layd. They're not fajr or maghrib or isha. These are prayers that he's praying sallallahu alayhi wasallam as nafal or optional prayers. And so they said based upon that, it is recommended in the nafal prayer, but not in the fard prayer. And this was the position of Ibn Qudam. As I said, the Hanbalis have more than one position, but this seems to be their mainstream position. And it's the position, therefore, that was followed by the scholars of Saudi Arabia. So the legend of Daima, the committee of major scholars of Saudi Arabia, this is the position that they uh, that they take as well. They say uh, it is better in the fard salah not to do so because the Prophet wasallam, it was never narrated that he did so to us. And how many salahs they would say, you know, just, just expanding upon that uh, evidence or that justification or that reasoning, how many salahs did the Prophet offer with his companions from the fard salah? 
How many fajrs did he pray? How many dhuhr, asr, maghrib? How many salahs would he have offered with the companions over the span of the of the ten odd years that he had in Medina when they were praying together in jama'ah? Like countless salahs, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of salahs that he's offering. And so how many companions were with him? How many prayed? Not a single one of them. And these are the companions who, by the way, relate to us the smallest issue when it came to salah. The way that he would sit, the way that he would raise his hands, the way that he would, that every single small thing, they relate to us concerning the salah. But they didn't narrate this to us, which shows that it's something which he didn't do in the fard salah. As for the, the nafal salah, like the hajjud and so on, then it is recommended to do so because of the hadith that we mentioned, the hadith of Hudayf and Awf bin Malik, and other than that, and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Uh, however, these scholars, it seems also and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best, even though they say that it shouldn't be done in the fard salah. If a person was to do it, then you know they, they don't say that it's a bid'ah, they don't say that it's something which is, is not allowed or something, but they say that it's not the sunnah. The Prophet never did so. And so therefore it is better not to do so either. Uh, the uh, Malikis are similar in their madhab, but they simply say that it is permissible to do so in the Nafil prayer and dislike to do so in the Fard prayer. Permissible in the Nafil prayer, they don't say it's recommended as opposed to the, the Hanbali position that we just mentioned because of those hadith. They, they say that it's allowed to do so if you want to do so and it is disliked in the Fard prayer. And it seems to be Allah Azza wa knows best that the reasoning for that again is because yes, it is related, but it's related by a few companions. Not something which you find many, many companions narrating. So perhaps the Prophet did this sometimes. Sometimes in his uh, in his Qiyamul Layl, he would do this. But not every single time, because there are a number of hadith that speak about his Qiyamul Layl that don't mention this. And so therefore, it's possible that the Prophet did it sometimes and he didn't do it at other times. So therefore, in conclusion, uh, the position that you do it in the Nafal prayer uh, and you do it at a time when it is easy to do or uh, convenient to do, then that is better than as opposed to doing it in the Fard Salah, number one, because it's not reported from the Prophet or at a time which is the Nafal Salah, but it may be inconvenient. So for example, now the nature of Taraweeh prayer in the vast majority of the world and maybe that's different to those uh, masajid that have Qiyamul Layl at night and there's a few people that come and they're expecting a long salah and so therefore if the imam, you know, they know that this imam is reciting slowly and he's going to stop and so on, it's not such a problem. But for many people, the taraweeh prayer, because people have to get, get up in the morning, go to work, sometimes there's kids there, children there, they've got school and so on, people don't really like a, an extraordinarily long salah. In fact, in many masajid, you know, they won't even finish the Qur'an in Ramadan because of this very reason, which is you know, perfectly fine and permissible. You don't have to finish the Qur'an in the month of Ramadan. However, it may well be that if someone like an imam was to do this then, in that type of situation where people generally, uh, you know, because the general principle of the Sharia is to bring people into the masjid and make them worship Allah Azza wa Jal and make them stay for as long as possible in terms of Finishing the taraweeh to the best of your position. Anything that you do that makes that longer or makes people less likely to come or less likely to stay or less likely to, to remain until the end, then that is something which, generally speaking, you know, perhaps is not the best thing to do in that type of situation. Until and, you know, unless people get to that. Because there are certain messages, in, you know, in, in the West it's different. But for example, I remember in certain countries, in like for example, when we used to live in Medina, in Saudi Arabia, there were certain masajid that were known that the imam will take a long time in salah. 
like his tarawih is going to be long. Like the average time for tarawih is what, an hour, an hour and a half and you finished. Now this imam is going to take two, two, three hours because he's going to read slow and the people of the masjid like this. They want him to because otherwise, as with every masjid, you know, there'd be complaints and so on and, and before you know it, there'd be problems. But they actually want this. And so the people in that general locality know that this is the masjid that you go for if you want to make a longer salah. If you don't have that long, then go somewhere else. You know, there's plenty of other masjid in those countries. You go somewhere else and you pray with them. So in that type of situation, again, it's different. Because now you know, okay, this is the masjid for this, and we have other masjid for that as well. In the West, not generally the case that you have that many masjid and that many options. Normally, you only have uh, one masjid that you go to. And so therefore, the imam, from his wisdom, is that he takes all of that into consideration. And Allah Azza wa knows best. Um, another issue that then relates to this is are these issues that we're speaking about are they constricted or restricted only to that which is mentioned in the hadith so for example the hadith mentions verse praise praising Allah Azza saying Alhamdulillah verses of tasbih which is saying Subhanallah verses of glorification verses of rahmah or reward Jannah and verses of punishment or the fire of hell what about for example those verses that may have istighfar in them or verses of takbir or verses of tahleel you come across the verse, Allahu la ilaha illahu. Allah, none has the right to be worshipped except Him. Is that allowed for you to say, therefore, stop, pause, and make the dhikr la ilaha illallah? Right? Uh, like you would say, subhanallah, or alhamdulillah. Why can't you say la ilaha illallah? Or, for example, saying, la, la, la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. Or, for example, saying, astaghfirullah. If you come across those verses, Allah says, for example, in Surah Nuh, فَقُلْتُ اسْتَغْفِرُوا رَبَّكُمْ I said to my people, make istighfar of your Lord, for indeed he is the one who is oft forgiving. Can you stop and say astaghfirullah? So is it, uh, and likewise even salat upon the Prophet wasallam in those verses that speak about sending peace and blessings upon the Prophet wasallam. So the question here is, is it restricted to this, just those three, four issues that are mentioned in those hadith, like the hadith in Sahih Muslim and the Sunan of Nasa'i, or is it something which we can say those are examples and anything which is similar in meaning, anything else which is a dhikr or a dua can also be made. It seems that Allah Azza wa knows best that it is something which is general, that it is permissible just as it is allowed for you to say subhanallah or alhamdulillah, then likewise it would be allowed for you to say la ilaha illallah for example or to say Allahu Akbar for example what Allah Azza wa says in the final verse of Surah Al-Isra, وَكَبِّرْهُ تَكْبِيرًا وَكَبِّرْهُ تَكْبِيرًا Make the takbir. Right? So you stop and you say, Allahu Akbar. Or similar to it. Uh, this seems to be the position of a number of the scholars of the Salaf. From amongst them is Imam Ahmad, rahimahullah ta'ala. Uh, Imam Ahmad was asked, if someone says, La ilaha illallah, or the Imam comes across a verse in which it is La ilaha illallah, can you say la ilaha illallah and, the, and you raise your voice doing so? He said, yes, you can, but you don't raise your voice. Meaning that in these adhkar generally, all of them, you don't say it out loud. Because as you're reciting the Quran, if you were to stop and start saying subhanallah loudly, or the whole masjid starts reverberating, it takes on a different meaning to what the verse is referring to or what the sunnah is referring to. And it becomes a type of practice, therefore, that is added in the salah, which can become problematic. He said, so therefore you say to yourself, um, so Imam uh, Ibn Qudama in his book Al-Mughni and Ibn Qudama 
as we know, is one of the major scholars of the Hanbali madhab. Uh, and, and it is something which he, uh, which you will find in, in his compendium Al-Mughni, which is one of the greatest books of, of fiqh in general, but especially in, uh, in the Hanbali madhab. He said, Imam Ahmad, ta'ala, he didn't dislike this, nor because he said that it's similar to make saying Ameen. Likewise, he said that it's better for them not to raise their voice. However, he didn't prohibit this. He didn't say it's not allowed. Right? He was asked in another narration, what if someone raises their voice and says it? He says that I dislike that they should do this. He said, can someone stop them from doing it? He said, no, you shouldn't stop them. Why? Because sometimes, even in the silent prayers, as we know, the Prophet would sometimes read slightly audibly. Like you do sometimes even now. You hear the Imam sometimes on the microphone, it's Dhuhr or Asr, and they'll read, you know, they'll read a verse, you'll hear them saying, or, you know, in Surah Al-A'la, they're reading, and all of a sudden you hear, like some of the verses they may say in a slightly audible voice. The Prophet would do so as well. He would do so as well. And so therefore, sometimes, you know, someone, for example, you hear someone saying, subhanAllah, next to you, not so loud, not in a loud voice, but so that the person on either side of him may hear this, then there is something which is okay. However, it shouldn't be said in a generally loud voice to say subhanAllah, alhamdulillah, and so on and so forth. Uh, it is it is something which you should do in the congregational prayer. If you're praying alone and so on, then the issue is easier and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. The final issue uh, that remains is referring to or regarding then verses that are not necessarily these verses that we've spoken about of dhikr and dua and verses of rahmah and verses of punishment and so on. But they are questions that Allah Azza wa asks that speak about his power or speak about his attributes or speak about his right to be worshipped alone. Like for example, the verse that we had in Surah Al-Teen, Alaysallahu bi-ahkamil hakimin. Or like the verse at the end of, uh, of Surah Al-Qiyamah, Alaysa thalika bi-qadirin ala an yuhiya al-mawta. Is he not the one therefore who has the ability to bring the dead back to life? And those types of verses of the Quran. Does Allah not know best those from amongst his servants who are grateful? Uh, as is the verse in Surah Al-An'am. Or the verse in Surah Al-Naml. Are there no, uh, is, there no, uh, is there any God besides Allah Azza wa Jal? And so you respond and you say, La ilaha illallah. You say, no, there is no God except Allah Azza wa Jal. Or for example, the verse in Surah Al-Zumar. Alisa Allahu bi abda. Is Allah not sufficient for his servants? Alaysa Allahu bi'azizin dintiqam in Surah Al-Zumar. Isn't Allah Azza wa Jal all-powerful and the one who takes retribution? Subhanahu wa ta'ala. These types of verses in which a question is being posed that speaks about the, the power of Allah Azza wa Jal, the, the right of Allah Azza wa Jal to be worshipped alone and so on. Is it permissible to respond in these verses? So we mentioned, for example, in the tafsir of Surah Al-Teen, that when we say Allahu that it was the practice of some of the Salaf to say Bala. Right? They would say yes. Indeed Allah is Ahkamul Hakimin. Alisa Dadika Biqadirin Ala in Yuhiya Mauta. They say Bala, yes, he is the one who has the power to uh, bring the dead back to life. Is this something generally which is permissible? You will find two positions amongst the scholars. The first is the position of those scholars who said this should only be done in those instances where it is reported amongst the Salaf or the Prophet or the companions that they did so, rather than 
because there are many questions that are posed throughout the Quran. So we're speaking about specific questions. So this isn't just every question that is asked or every statement that is a, a question that is asked concerning, for example, the disbelievers or the hypocrites or the Jews and the Christians. These are specific questions in specific places in the Quran in which it is done. In those specific places, is it allowed or not? Some of the scholars said no. You only do it if you find a nas, because otherwise there's too many. And it may be taken and, you know, like people may make it more general than it should be. So, for example, one of the uh, verses that it is reported amongst some of the Salaf that they would do so. And in fact, it's, it's reported some hadith even of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Although I think there is, you know, some, some uh, difference of opinion as to the veracity and so on. Uh, is the verse of Surah Al-Qiyamah, the end of Surah Al-Qiyamah, So therefore on that verse you would do this. And this was the position of uh, a number of the scholars from them, Shaykh Ibn Baz, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, that you kind of restrict it to where you have a clear indication that amongst the Salaf, because the Salaf generally were more aware, better versed in the tafsir of the Quran, better understanding of the Book of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala, and so when they did so, it is normally a practice therefore that you see and often the Salaf did it because they found their teachers doing so. Even if they're not narrated or we don't have those narrations, generally speaking, that is something which you will find and Allah Azza wa knows best. Um, however, if it is not that case, in, meaning the cases or the, the other position therefore is, uh, those scholars who said yes, it is permissible generally, even if there is no narration we don't have anything amongst the salaf that says that they did so it is permissible for you to do so and this was the position that was taken by Sheikh ibn al-thaymeen rahimahullahu ta'ala and he said that there are many verses that fall under this category and so we see those two different approaches amongst two major scholars of our time and allah azza wa jal knows best okay if there's any questions we're taking we can't, that kind of comes to the i thought that would take less time to be frank than than it has Alhamdulillah, I think it was uh, a beneficial uh, issue to discuss. So inshallah ta'ala, we'll conclude with that today. And then inshallah ta'ala, we'll continue next week with uh, with verse number two. So if there's any questions, uh, I'll take them. Otherwise, inshallah, we will stop. Do the du'as responses need to be said in Arabic or can it be done in any language? If you know the Arabic, then it's always better to do so. And generally speaking, for these types of verses, like saying subhanallah, alhamdulillah, and so on, uh, most of us would probably be able to make those adhkar in Arabic. That would be, I think it is always better to keep it in Arabic, especially when it comes to ibadat or those types of ibadah like salah. However, if someone wants to do it in another language, uh, then uh, then there is something, inshallah ta'ala, which is fine. It is permissible, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, I think I've, I've mentioned volume of speech. I've answered that at minimum, should one mouth it with the tongue and lips with no sound as opposed to thinking in the mind alone yes because anything which is said uh, the, when we say say something in the Arabic language it means the movement of the tongue and lips to think it is not to say it so to think it or to have it in your mind and this is a common mistake that people make in salah you will see people they don't move their tongues they don't move their open their mouth and they and when you speak to them they're like we're reading we're reading in our minds that's not called reading in Islam it's not because the Prophet said, Man qara'a, whoever reads, and no one, uh, and what it means by reading is the movement of the tongue, right? Not, not silent reading as we do in, in books and so on, that's fine, you do what you can. But if, for example, when it comes to Quran, ibadah, if someone was just to read in their mind, that would be a reflection and, and, and contemplation. They wouldn't get the reward of every single word being equal to 
10 rewards and so on, all those hadith that we know of the virtue of reciting the Quran, that is only done when there is movement of the tongue and the lips, right? Movement of the tongue and the lips. So likewise in ibadat, likewise in ibadat. So for example, in salah, the dhikr, the, you know, just to think or make your dhikr in your mind, that's not called dhikr uh, or you don't get the reward of that type of dhikr that we're referring to. So that's a general position anyway. Uh, what is the class position? The class doesn't really have a position uh, per se on this particular issue. Um, and I think both of those positions are, are strong, even though I generally tend to go with uh, Sheikh bin Baz, ta'ala, I think erring on the side of caution, uh, mainly because uh, in our time, most people are not well versed in the book of Allah Azza wa Jalla. They're not, their knowledge of tafsir and their knowledge generally of Quran and Quranic sciences is, is very, very low. And so therefore to open that door to a lot of people, I think people would perhaps not understand the nuances of which verses are being referred to and which are not being referred to, what type of questions are we doing this with and not others and so on. And so it opens a door therefore that, that I think many people would struggle with anyway. The position of Sheikh Bin Baz is very easy. You know, there's like two or three places in the Quran, you stick to them and the rest of them you don't really have to worry about. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Okay, so inshallah ta'ala we'll stop there and inshallah ta'ala next week we will continue with the tafsir of Surah Al-A'la. Barakallahu feekum. Wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.